So, for some uh, people it's a monumental, epic journey to get from the morning of the first day to the evening. So congratulations, if that's been the case. The, um, when I first started uh, sitting retreats, I struggled a lot. And um, I struggled a lot uh, with my, oh, can people hear okay? Is this, uh, people hear? Maybe a little bit, we need, it looks like we need to turn it up a little bit for me. So let's see, now is that better now? Is that okay? It's, it's a little bit too loud for me, but maybe it doesn't have to be for me. Is it okay for you? Okay. Okay, thank you. So, so I struggled a lot in the beginning. And um, uh, one, of my, one, one of the clear signs for me that I'd made progress in my retreat practice was when I could go through a retreat without being angry. Because I would get angry because things weren't going the way they were supposed to. I wasn't going the way I was supposed to. You know, you name it. And, um, and uh, so it wasn't that I became more concentrated or more spiritual at great experiences. Um, something more profound happened to me. I stopped being angry. <laughs> Then nice. I thought it was nice. So uh, one of the things about this kind of retreat, and then uh, doing Buddhist practice, mindfulness practice in general, is that um, uh, it changes over time, and it changes not randomly. Though sometimes it can seem that way, uh, it puts you on a journey, and uh, it's a good journey, a really good journey to go on. And you'll see in the course of these days on the retreat that you'll go through a journey. And it's helpful to think of it that way because it's very easy to get caught up in the drama of this particular sitting, this particular event right now, and uh, succumb to what I used to succumb to, which is the delusion of permanence, which was, I'm always going to be this way. I'm always going to be angry. I'm always going to be restless. I'm always going to be sleepy, or whatever it might be. And, uh, but it's a journey, and you'll see that it changes. And it changes in, um, in a variety of ways. And usually it's uh, meaningful ways. And uh, the difficulties of the first day uh, will seem probably like, uh, you know, distant past by Friday or Saturday. So one of the things they say, we sometimes say, is we're here to discover the Dharma or to learn the Dharma. This is called the Dharma talk. So I'm supposed to say something about the Dharma or, or do something with the Dharma. That's what it's called, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and um, so, uh, and I have a PhD in Buddhist studies, so I could keep you up all night <laughs> if you'd like learning the Dharma. But I, I'll, I'd like to make it uh, simple for you. Uh, there's an ancient Buddhist teaching 
about what about uh, the characteristic of the Dharma. So the, the, the lakana, the characteristic of the Dharma, what, how, it, how it's characterized. And if you understand the characteristic of the Dharma, you might not need to know all the other things. You might not need to go get a PhD. Save you a lot of time to go and retreat instead. And um, so the characteristic of the Dharma <coughs> is non-conflict. Non-conflict, ahimsa. And... Um, I love this idea that somehow that the contact with the Dharma, the exploration of the Dharma, the practicing the Dharma is characterized by non-conflict, non-harming. And um, it's a good thing to keep in mind and to use as kind of a big question. Uh, how, what does it mean to not be in conflict? And how do I learn this quality of the, of the Dharma, not be in conflict? Or how do I practice the Dharma so I'm not in conflict with anything? And conflict here, non-conflict here, does not refer to what might go on in your daily life in the world. There are times when people are in conflict with each other. And sometimes it can be quite challenging to find our way through the conflicts in families or at work or in society or between peoples. And sometimes conflict requires us to say no very clearly or to stand up and do something. But uh, it's a little bit different than what we're exploring when we're doing the Dharma practice. The, the Dharma has to do with how we meet our experience, how we meet ourselves. And can we, in the meeting with our awareness, with our hearts, can the awareness stay open and have no, no constriction, no resistance in the field of awareness? Can there be no constriction, no resistance, no pushing, no aversion, no sense of conflict in the heart. So to keep, the, as we're saying, this retreat, keep the heart open, and you still might have to say no. And so the task here is not to solve the problems of your outside life, but necessarily. That's a big, that's, who knows what goes on there. But here, the t- one of the primary tasks is to solve the problem of how the heart gets into conflict, how the heart gets tight or constricted or closed or afraid or uh, wound up in its desire and addictions and greeds or its hates and aversions and resentments, how it gets caught up in its addictive thinking that it might have. All these things can be characterized sometimes as, characterized as being in conflict with how things are. And so how do we meet our experience here? It's a great question for a retreat. How do we meet what comes up? without being in conflict with it. So for some of you today, you can go back and look at and review the day. And uh, for some of those of you, which probably most of you, um, had some challenges today. And were you in conflict with those challenges? Did you hate it? Were you upset about it? Were you despairing about it? Were you criticizing yourself for it? Berating yourself for, for what was going on? Were you berating us teachers for setting up the schedule this way? Uh, you know, were you somehow, what kind of conflict did you have with your experience? Uh, what would it have been like if you had your experience but you were not in conflict with it? Um, so if you're sleepy, if you're restless, how can we meet that without conflict is one of the tasks of the, one of the things we're here to discover. And I find it very helpful to consider it this way because 
of my own experience, my early retreats, where I was in so much conflict because I had these ideals that I was trying to live up to. And I didn't realize that the Dharma was discovered here and now, in the moment. I thought it was about getting someplace. And I had to huff and puff and get concentrated and do all kinds of spiritual gymnastics. And then I could prove myself. Then I could be something. And, uh, and so I, what happened to me was that I ended up in conflict with what was actually happening. I was trying to bypass it, override it, squash it, deny it, ignore it, something. But what's it like if you realize that the Dharma is found in non-conflict, what's it like to meet this moment as it is, whatever it might be? So one of the tasks then is, uh, is to meet this moment, is to be here. And that's one of the first big tasks of being, doing this practice, being on retreat, is training the mind, settling the mind to be here. And some of you probably discovered how much of the time the mind is there. There and then is the operating mode of the mind, as opposed to here and now. So what I mean by that is that you might be spending a lot of time planning the next retreat. <laughs> I've done that on retreat. <laughs> you know, just, I can't wait for the next retreat. Then I can really practice. <laughs> and, uh, or, um, you know, or, or remembering things. I've spent time remembering my resentments going through the catalog. You know, so remembering things or planning things or thinking about the future or, or sometimes uh, it's just uh, not there or then or here, here and now. It's nowhere. It's in my, you know, fantasy. I'm just, you know, caught up in my thoughts and my fantasies of things. And so the mind can be all kinds of other places. Some of you probably, the mind today was still at work. Some of you are still in your home life because it's just a lot of momentum there, your concerns of everyday life. And those concerns naturally will keep coming back. The momentum of your, what you're concerned with in daily life, you bring that momentum with you to the retreat. And so the mind continues in that momentum. And to expect that you can just snap your fingers and suddenly have all the momentum stop and sit here serenely without thinking about anything <clears throat> is unrealistic. And so to be in non-conflict with all the momentum, all the churning of the mind or whatever goes on is one of the tasks. How do we find that? How do we do that? Um, but then also at the same time, not to just give into it, but to be, train ourselves, settle ourselves so we can be here at this time, at this place with our attention. And that takes a lot of coming back. It comes a lot of recognizing, a lot of waking up. Or there I was again, fantasizing. Let's wake up, let's come back here. And one of the uh, little practices that I do that I find very helpful is actually say the word here. As I, when my mind is really restless and spinning and it's hard to be present, um, I'll, I'll, re- I'll just say to myself here, partly as a reminder, never as a command that you give a dog, uh, just, just here. And it's a very open-ended here. It's, it's a reminder uh, uh, to be here and to be aware of this experience now, here, in a very open, broad way. Here is a mind that's distracted. Here is a mind, a body a, that's sleepy. Here. Here's how it is. And just kind of like, I say here, and then I take a moment just to experience the fullness of here without getting narrow or having specific or some idea of what it's supposed to be. Just experience, this is how it is now, here. Um, and I can maybe do it for, that lasts for about a second. 
And then I do it again, here, here. And for me, it's a way of not being in conflict with my experience at the same time as being, as, as training myself, settling into being here, recognizing I want to be here. And here I'm a person who's thinking about the past. Here I'm a person who's thinking about the future. Here I'm a person who's just drifting off here. To recognize that, and there's something very powerful about recognizing what is actually happening here. And that's the task of meeting ourselves in practice, is to meet what's actually happening. Andrea used a lovely expression this morning, our lived experience. We want to live in our lived experience, not in our virtual experience that we can live in when we spend a lot of time thinking about the past or the future. So we want the meeting, a meet, when you meet somebody, when you meet anything, that happens in the present moment. Uh, if I'm going to meet any of you, if you came yesterday and I come tomorrow, we don't meet. Or if I go downstairs and you go upstairs and we try to meet, we don't meet. We have to be in the same place at the same time to meet. And so this idea of meeting requires us to be here and present. And, uh, and so this is a journey of practice to really meet ourselves, the world, the present moment in a full and, and, and beautiful way eventually. But we have to start by meeting. And what we meet, uh, we touch, we experience. One of the words for, that's used in our Buddhist tradition for meeting, in a sense, is contact. And the, actually, it's usually translated as contact, fasa. The word, Pali word fasa literally means to touch or to be touched. And that, again, this, this, this kind of uh, physical word for the act of meeting. It's something intimate and close and connected. So what do we touch? What can we touch here and now? We don't touch anything in the future. And we're, just, we're just fantasizing about it. We don't touch anything that happened in the past. It's long gone. You, can't, you can remember it, but you can't touch it. So we're trying to t- discover a higher quality of attention where we're touching our lived experience. Well, what's happening here and now? But how to do it without being in conflict with the tremendous momentum to not be here is part of the task. That's what the Dharma means, not to be in conflict. That's, so, so to be very generous to all this. And I like to think of it as being very welcoming. I hope that the Dharma, I know the Dharma, is infinitely welcoming for all of you. You're allowed to be exactly as you are, as the Dharma will receive you and hold you. It doesn't mean you get to kind of continue barreling ahead, causing havoc in the world. But when you sit down to meditate, whatever is going on inside of you, whatever thoughts, feelings, momentums you have, we sit still, upright, dignified, and we welcome it in the Dharma. It's welcomed in the Dharma. You don't have to be in conflict with anything. But we, we want to be in touch with it. We want to meet it. So here, here, this is how it is. Another word that I use sometimes is the word this. And I like the label this because it's so generic and it doesn't require any brain power to figure out a better word. (laughs) This, this is what's happening now. This, this, I'm sleepy. This, my mind is wandering off. This, my knee hurts. This, here. 
So we're here to meet, so, and to ex- explore how we meet. And there's two aspects of meeting I'd like to suggest here. There's what you meet, and how you are when you meet it. And many times, the focus, some people focus a lot on the what, and sometimes we focus on the how we are. <clears throat> I, I believe that the primary transformation that happens in Dharma practice is in the how we are, not in what the experience is. So, so how we are when we make that meeting, whether we're meeting ourselves in some way or meeting others, how are we? Are we meeting with some sense of conflict? So are we meeting without conflict? Is there a receptivity? Is there an openness in some way? Um, does the heart stay open or do we get closed or frightened? How are we when we meet that? Are we free or are we clinging to something? So, um, so when we sit here and we meet ourselves, one of the things we meet is the how. How are we? How are we? And then it, one of the questions is, when we start discovering how we are, start understanding what motivates us, what we want, what our desires are, what our fears are, what our resistance and aversions are, um, do we give in to them or do we find freedom from them? And if you give in to them, we say, well, you're not really free. The ability not to give in is a symptom, a sign of freedom. I believe that, uh, kind of, to be, if you're a little bit generous to me, say, listen, that in America, I think that the, the kind of the overarching emphasis on freedom is freedom to, to, to do things. Freedom to vote, freedom to assembly, freedom to religion, freedom to bear arms, they say, freedom to vote, freedom to shop. And um, the emphasis in Buddhism is not so much the freedom to do, as important as it is, but rather is a freedom from, freedom from compulsion, freedom from acting uh, uh, based on clinging or being driven. Um, so if, for example, I was able to give you an unlimited credit card, then please go shop. And you go shopping to your heart's content. You shop, what you get, whatever you want. That's maybe nice. But if I send you to the market with no money at all, and I t- tell you, you know, and then your desires for wanting those things is still there, then you can't fulfill the desire. And maybe what you feel then, some people at least would feel, um, they'd feel that the desire, I want that, I, but I have to have it. I, I can't survive without it. I need it. And you start seeing what the desire that you're living under, how not free you are with it. Whereas if you had the unlimited credit card, you wouldn't think you were enslaved. <laughs> you thought that you were just, you know, you were just being reasonable. So sometimes by limiting our behavior, we see, we meet ourselves in a deeper way than we can if we have, if we have unlimited freedom to act any kind of way at all. So one of the things that happens on retreat is we do limit our behavior. We're not doing a lot of the things that we normally would do. And so in that uh, limitation, sometimes we start seeing some of the momentum of our desires and wanting and compulsions that we live under. And there's a, you know, there's a long list of what it could be. Um, so, uh, even, and then even, so that's just being on retreat, for example, talking. 
uh, if you've never been on silent retreat before, sometimes it's quite challenging to be among so many, around so many people where people aren't talking. Um, because many peop- some people's way of finding their safety or their comfort in a group of people is to talk and establish a common ground or establish themselves. And if you can't talk, you can't make that, you can't establish yourself in some way. And so the urge to talk, the urge to reach out, the urge, whatever, is still there, but now you get to meet it and see it, and it can be uncomfortable. Uh, one of the, if you're new on retreat, uh, maybe you had this experience already, um, outside of here, if you go to a long table of people sitting, eating their meal, and there's a cha- one chair left, and you go sit down at that table, and everyone's looking in their oatmeal, and no one looks up and says hello or greets you, just they even recognize you exist, and they're eating. Outside of here, it's bad news. <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, and so if you bring kind of the cues of outside of here, your, how you cue yourself and establish yourself and other people, and that momentum for doing that is still operating, you're going to suffer down the dining room. It doesn't mean what it means outside. It just means that they're being mindful of their oatmeal. It doesn't mean they're ignore, ignoring you or anything. Maybe they are ignoring you, but it doesn't mean... <laughs> It doesn't mean, you know, that you're being shunned. Um, so there's a lot of lessons here that when we discover how we normally operate, the conditioning we have, doesn't get fulfilled or doesn't quite fit in how we are here. And so we get to see it and question it. We meet ourselves that way. Um, so, um, uh, you know, so then we sit down to meditate and the idea is to sit for 45 minutes relatively still and just be with the breath. And it's not easy to do that. And you get to see how difficult it is. And that is part of the lesson of being on retreat. It's an important part of the lesson is to see how difficult it is to sit down and just focus on your breath. It's not a mistake that you can't focus on your breath. So if you think it's a mistake, you'll be like me and get it, maybe get angry at yourself. But if you've done a mistake, focusing on the breath, trying to focus on the breath, helps you to see how see what goes, the momentum of the mind, the, the desires and the wishes and the fears and all the churnings of the mind, you get to see it in a higher, more clear, higher quality way. You get to meet that part of yourself in a way that you can't meet it if you just turn on the television. And you just ignore it, you know, or you go out and do something in the world. It makes sense? I hope it makes sense what I'm saying. So, so we're set up here to meet ourselves in a deeper, fuller way than we normally can. And sometimes what we meet is not good news, is not comfortable. And we come back to the characteristic of the Dharma is non-conflict. And the training is, how can I be with how I am without being in conflict with it, without struggling with that, being hating it, without thinking I'm wrong for it. I just be here with it, here. Here, I'm a person who's struggling. Here, I'm a person who has seen something about myself that is not flattering. It's okay. If anything, you should be celebrating. Finally, I get to see it. Because then you can work with it. You can be, you know. So there's a way, it's a little bit, for some people, I'm not, I don't know which of you, but for some people, the practice of sitting still or walking quietly back and forth, sitting still and focusing your breath, is a little bit like training a wild horse. That... Uh, uh, the way I understand, one way I understand of training a horse, maybe it's old-fashioned now, but 
is you take a stake in the middle of the corral and you have a rope that's tied to the horse. And the horse will be wild and buck and run around, runs around and around. After a while, it gets tired and realizes it can, can't, can't do anything. It can't really, it's not really free. So it settles down, quiets down until the horse trainer can come up and, and, and train the horse. So sometimes that's, like, that's what happens here. We meet ourselves, we meet the wildness of what's in there, all the unruly thoughts and ideas and feelings. And um, we, we try not to be in conflict with it, but we keep coming back. We don't give free rein to it. We come back, we wake up, here I am, here I am, this is what's happening. And uh, slowly, the wildness quiets down, <coughs> settles down. Or sometimes, as we start having less conflict with our life, it's like the winds die down as they, as they blow across the surface of a lake. And so as the winds uh, uh, die down, the surface of the lake gets calm and settled. Or it's like growing up from being a redwood sapling that can be blown over by the wind so easily. And as we get rooted here and settled here, uh, we have it like a redwood that has a wide network of roots and this very tall, straight um, trunk that uh, isn't moved by the wind at all. So whatever the metaphor you like, um, uh, keep coming back and being here changes us and, and, uh, in a useful way, trains us, tames us, grows us, matures us, settles us, quiets us. So the investigation of here, of meeting ourselves, um, there's an interesting, um, couple of interesting, I think, questions you can have or attitudes you can have for this kind of practice. One attitude I recommend for being on retreat it's a, a kind of an, it's a good policy. Uh, you shouldn't uh, take this being kind of superstitious uh, or kind of some kind of new age truth. It's just an attitude. Have the attitude that whatever happens to you on the retreat was supposed to happen. Not only was it supposed to happen, but it happened exactly on time. So you can even you know look at your watch. Oh yeah, I'm restless. Oh, right on time. <laughs> My, then my neighbor in the hall is being really noisy. I can't believe how noisy. How could anybody be allowed to bring Velcro jacket into the hall? They rip it off and they put it on and they rip it off. And so you look at your right on time. This, this is supposed to be happening. And the reason why this is a good attitude on retreat, and uh, not to be taken too seriously, but a good attitude, is that um, then you don't see the problem outside of you but you see it as an opportunity for you to train inside of yourself to not be in conflict. What does it take for you to work through the judgments, the expectations, the angers, the, the agendas that you have that things should be a certain way when they aren't that way? How can you learn to be at ease? How can you learn to be free with how things are? If you're only free when things are going the way you want, you're not free. If you're only free when things are comfortable, you're not really free. So we take whatever's going on and we take it as an opportunity to discover, how can I practice with this? How can I find my open heart? How can I find how not to be in conflict with this? And I've sat in the hall and had the Velcro guy, literally, in the three-month retreat at IMS, long, still, quite, 
I couldn't believe this guy. He, he, he always came in late. He sat two seats away over from me. He was always late. And I don't know where he was, but he was always compl- he would come stomping across the floor, the walking hall, and in stomping, you know, like a, I thought in my mind it was like a lumberjack. And uh, maybe I was a little bit too sensitive. And then um, he would always be completely out of breath. And so he, <gasps> and then there was a Velcro jacket. <laughs> it was quite an event. Every time. So I had a lot to practice with. And I learned that it was much more useful for me to have no issue with him, but only to have issue with myself. Because I wasn't going to do anything about him. And I learned that I could sit there quietly and be at peace and at ease with the stomping and the breathing and the Velcro. And actually, at some point, I used it as just a mindfulness bell. I said, oh, great, I'm present. There's that sound. I'm pre- you know, I, now I know I'm here. I'm not anywhere else. So, so the idea that so one attitude that you might want to adopt as a kind of working attitude is whatever happens here is supposed to happen. And your task is to be still and present and, and, and mindful of it. So if your knee hurts, there's a loud sound in the room. If the, you should go down to the kitchen and all they serve is, only thing they serve is tempeh. And, and not, nothing but tempeh. <laughs> Maybe different kinds of dishes, but just tempeh. <laughs> then, okay, I guess I'm supposed to practice with this, as opposed to writing a note to the teachers. You can't believe what they're serving us. So it makes some sense, I hope, what I'm saying. So that's one attitude I think I found very helpful on retreat. So then an interesting question you can bring to your practice to explore what's going on, um, is this question, what am I bringing with me when I meet anything? Do you go into any meeting, whether it's with another person or with yourself on the cushion, do you go in innocent? (laughs) Do you go in with no agendas, no conditionings, no plans, no, you know, do you you show up just empty? Here I am. Let it be as it is. Chances are you bring a lot with you. And so you can ask that question, what am I bringing with me here when I meet myself? So for example, uh, one of the things I, I brought with me in my early retreats, I, I'm sure all these things I still do to some degree, but um, uh, I brought with me a lot of expectations of what was supposed to happen. And if it wasn't happening by the middle of the first day or the first morning, I was a failure. I wasn't, it wasn't going right. And one of, one of the expectations I had arose, maybe it's happened to some of you, arose because in my daily sitting, I would sit for 40 minutes every day, uh, I got, you know, my life was busy and active and I get kind of calm because I was so wor- worked up. And so it was nice to sit. And I thought, oh, this is great to sit. I sit every day, it's so good. It'll be so much better to do more of it. I'll just go sailing into nirvana because it's going so well but it's a whole different animal to come here on retreat it's a whole different event and so 
you know, so I would come with this expectation that I would just kind of like the first, and I'd, go, I'd go sit through the first sitting of the day, of the first day. Oh, that's right, it's working. Because it was the, fir- it was the first 40 minutes, right? <laughs> and then it was like, because it's a different animal, a whole different event, it, wouldn't, it wasn't got deeper and deeper or quieter or quieter, or stiller and stiller. It was like busier and busier and more restless and more tense and, you know, and it was not what I expected it. And so when, when, I, when it, things were not what I expected or demanded, was maybe more like it, uh, I would be upset. And one of the ways, I, one of the things I would do when I was upset, I would try harder. I'd bear down. And when I bear down and went harder, guess what? It, it, it worked even less. And then I would try harder. That's all I knew was to try harder. That's what I brought with me. If it's not working, I've got to try harder. So that's something I brought with me. That's an attitude I had. And I didn't know that, I had no idea that a useful thing to do is to relax. I had, had never, no one ever told me that. So I only relaxed in my first retreats when it got so bad, so impossible, that the only solution was to give up. <laughs> I said, it's hopeless. And when I finally said it was hopeless, I give up. Then it would start. Then the retreat really started. It took about three days. Um, so I brought with me expectations. That's one thing we can bring. Lots of expectations. That different kinds of expectations we can bring. We can also bring uh, attitudes, all kinds of attitudes. So one attitude is attitudes of needing to be successful or needing to be, at, be right. Lately I've been talking to a lot of people who have a very deep, almost like their fundamental operating system, is the idea that they have to be right. And so they have to do things right, otherwise something terrible is going to happen. So here's an interesting idea. Now it would be nice if you learned Buddhist practice, got the instructions from us, we gave you brilliant instructions, the true right instructions for practice, you, it made complete sense to you. You were completely capable of following them to the T. You did the right practice, the right way, the right time, everything was right, and you just did it right all the way to your full, perfect enlightenment. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> so, it, this is my idea, that if you could, could do the practice just right, just right, it'd probably take two or three times longer to get enlightened <laughs> than if you did it wrong. You can't do it right. But a huge part of the path is going a little bit off to the left, a little bit off to the right. We learn, we learn of ourselves, we meet ourselves in a higher quality, very important way when we make mistakes, when things are not going right, when we f- discover how difficult things are for us. Don't be so concerned about doing Dharma practice right. Be concerned about letting the Dharma practice help you to meet yourself more fully. So I brought with me this attitude of I have to do it right, and that tied myself in knots with that for a long time. And then we can bring with us um, uh, identity issues. I have to be someone. I need to have a good sitting from you know, before my next interview, so I have something to talk about, because I want to show the teachers what a good retreatant I am. And um, and I know one teacher who um, uh, saved an interview. <laughs> for many days, so that uh, he could tell his teacher that good interview. 
But the teacher was really wise. And the teacher said, that didn't happen recently. He said, I busted. <laughs> the teacher saw through it. He got busted. He had to apologize for talking about what happened many days ago, as if it happened just in the last couple of days, last day. So then all kinds of identity issues and, and uh, come into play. So, you know, again, you know, I hope I don't depress you with my horror stories when I said you, my first retreats. Um, but one of the things was I did a lot of comparative thinking. And, um, and my, you know, my eyes would flit to left and right to see the people next to me. And they're not sitting so straight or they're not sitting so still. And, you know, you know I would sit in order to be better than them. So that's not a, you know, so that's an interesting thing to discover about oneself, that we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. And some people do that. And so that's part of the meeting. So we bring that to the equation. We bring that to the meeting of anything. I'm com- in this situation, I'm constantly looking around and comparing who else, how's other people doing? So there's a lot, a lot of things we can discover about ourselves. What, about, what am I bringing here? What am I bringing along? Which leads us to the next question that I think is a useful one to ask. Is uh, what is extra? What's not needed in this meeting? What's not needed right now as I'm present here? When I'm really here, what's not needed? If you're really here, going to be here, what's not needed is being lost in fantasy or lost in, the, in your thought, because then you're not here. But if you're really here, what's not needed? To say it another way, how simple can you be in just being here? Can you be here without expectation? Can you be here without uh, assigning meaning to what's happening? It's another thing I used to do, assigning meaning. This means that I'll never get concentrated. This means I'll never be awake. This means my knee will never stop hurting. This means I, you know, this means that I'm in the wrong place. This means I should have gone to Fiji. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. And um, so this assigning a meaning to the situation, maybe that's not needed. Or maybe it's not needed to make any kind of identity statement this means I am. I am a bad retreatant. I'm a bad meditator. I'm a great meditator. I hope everyone notices. Um, so maybe we're not, maybe that's extra. Maybe there doesn't have to be any kind of statement about me. Me, myself, and mine. Uh, this is my, finally, finally I'm calm and settled. My, preci- my precious calm. No one better disturb it. No Velcro in the hall. What's, what's maybe extra there, not needed, is this strong holding on and clinging to my experience, which is so pleasant. I gotta keep it, I have to stay, keep it so important, I finally have it. Or maybe what's not needed is resisting something. Some people will spend a long period of time in, in meditation, for example, to trying to avoid feeling certain feelings or admitting certain things that really need to be admitted, running away from themselves. Maybe it's not needed to do that. And so, um, so what's not needed is the question. And if you ask that question, I think you'll find 
that many of the things that are going on for you, uh, many of the thoughts and ideas, uh, attitudes, opinions that you have, um, ways in which you're actively creating a sense of identity around this, it's not really needed. So then you could be aversive to it and try to get rid of those things. Or you can practice non-conflict and just open here. Oh, look at that. I'm caught up in meaning-making. This is what's happening. This is meaning-making as opposed to, oh no, this is terrible. You can say, oh, I'm, I'm comparing myself to other people. That's what's happening. Comparative mind is happening. As, a, as opposed to saying, um, you know, I shouldn't be doing this. If you have, I shouldn't be doing this, then you're bringing with you to the meeting a, a judgment that maybe, maybe it's extra. Maybe you don't need to judge anything. You just need to be present. And that's one of the real keys of this practice of mindfulness, that everything, everything can open up for you if you keep coming back, just being present for it. Just being present for it, present for it. I loved um, Andrea's uh, little analogy of the anchor this morning. All these years, we all, so many times have used the idea, use the breath as an anchor, but I've never heard anyone do anything with the analogy. <laughs> that was great. So I went further. And um, with it, so the um, so when when a boat has an anchor, it's almost always the anchor is off the bow. And um, and the boat on the water floats, right? So, and so the boat is always facing against the strongest force against it. So if the current is flowing strongly, uh, the the current pushes the boat around. So the bow is facing against the current. If there's a strong wind, the wind pushes the boat around, and so the bow faces the upwind. So this idea that whatever is pushing you around, you might stay with your breathing, but maybe there's a way of you actually return towards what's happening and look it right in the eye. This is what's happening now. We don't have to run away, we don't push it away, we just, here we are, rooted, anchored, present, and we look at it. This is how it is. So then I'll... I'll, I'll, um, So one of the things I discovered after a number of years of these, my first retreats, was that um, was as I I let go of, or shed, a lot of the extra stuff I brought with me into the moment. Didn't bring so much. And just was there in a stronger, stronger presence. This was there in the moment for this experience. The how I was became much more important than what was happening to me. And the how that became important was strong, mindful attention strong, embodied, mindful attention, really being present. And the, the idea of, of presence or very strong attention, awareness, became, became so satisfying and meaningful that it was delight to rest in that strong attention, the strong awareness being present here and now. 
it became more satisfying than fantasizing. It became more, more satisfying than thinking about things. It became more satisfying than desiring things and wanting things. I still wanted things, I still had thoughts, I still had fantasies that would pop up, up, but they were more like, sometimes they felt like rain, rain falling on an umbrella. And the mindfulness was so strong that these other, they would just kind of wash off. I wasn't interested in getting involved. And that's a radical shift in many people's minds to go from being almost addicted to our thoughts and our ideas or to give them a lot of authority or to live as if we're going to solve all our problems by thinking them out or, or, or living in our desires or living in our aversions and resentments and fears. We give so much authority to these things in our life, tremendous authority. And it's not really, it's not so obvious how much authority we hand over, we give up to our thoughts, that we give up to our feelings until we learn how to be fully present without being caught by them. And the idea that this really strong sense of presence is there, nothing needs to happen because the presence, the attention is so settled here in such a satisfying, meaningful way is a cornucopian revolution for some people's minds. Because until then, what we think is meaningful and satisfying and important for us is getting things in the world, changing our experience, making something different. But when the attention, mindfulness is really strong and settled, nothing has to change. And then perhaps we have the experience that just to be alive is enough. Just to be here is enough. Not because it's a diminishing of ourselves, but because it's an enhancing of ourselves. And when you, when you feel the, the, this open hardness, open mindedness, fullness of here, then you can also feel how chasing after a thought, getting caught up in a desire, that diminishes you, it contracts you, it narrows your focus. A fascinating little exercise to do on retreat, I think, is um, if at some point, I don't know when it might happen, but you have some higher quality feeling, and now I'm really present, I'm here, I'm mindful, some higher than usual. Get a sense of what the quality of your mind and attention is at that point. And then just continue your practice until you find yourself really in a really good, it has to be a really good one, a really good bout of being lost in thought. So, you know, just wait for one. It's part of the exercise. You have to have one. So it's not a mistake. Just wait until you get a, don't, don't make one happen. Just wait until it happens. And when that happens, then try to look at the quality of your mind then. And what some people have reported, the difference is that when the mind is open and attentive and present, it's kind of like there's light. And when we get lost in our thoughts, the light dims and gets dark. There's kind of a losing ourselves or darkening of it. And so it's a way, even though it might seem, you know, like you, have a, you have, might have a great sexual fantasy or a great vacation fantasy or a great food fantasy, that in some ways is, is, is pleasure, pleasure, pleasant to have in some way. That's part of the attraction. But it actually, you can, if you're attentive to this difference between 
the open, large awareness and this diminishing of ourselves that happens when we get caught up in the fantasy, the pleasure is not that meaningful compared to what we lose in the process. So I hope this makes some sense. So, the Dharma is characterized by non-conflict. And if that's all you learn for this retreat, I think that, and practice that, try to find how to practice non-conflict with the mind, with the heart. Not necessarily with behavior, maybe with behavior you have to take care of things, but with the heart and mind, how do you find this non-conflict? It's a powerful, it'd be a powerful exercise. To do that well, we were here to meet, meet ourselves. And so we want to try to meet ourselves with a spirit of non-conflict. And in a certain sense, be very welcoming, just like the Dharma welcomes all of you. Hopefully you can be welcoming to yourself completely as you are. So whatever you see in yourself, whatever comes up, it's not a problem. It's happening just on time. You're not supposed to give in to it and just kind of continue whatever fantasy you're having, but not to be in conflict with it and try to wake up, try to be present. Say this, say here, come back to your breathing. It can help to sometimes to have this question, what am I bringing into this experience with me? What am I bringing that's extra? Many times it's unconscious or subconscious, all the different assumptions, attitudes, beliefs, meanings that we add. And it can be so much simpler. A lot of that's extra. And the real key, I think, for really going deep or far, mature fully in this practice, is to allow yourself to get really simple. And I liken it to going through um, like an hourglass. The Dharma is really wide. It holds all of who you are. And your life might seem really big at first. And then as you settle into the present moment, in a certain kind of way, your life gets smaller and smaller because it becomes just here, in this hall, at this breath. And then at some point, when you can just be very simple and completely relaxed and at ease, uh, then it opens up again. And it's kind of like a new world. Or maybe it's like turning your, you have your sweaters inside out. You have to turn it into, in, 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 into itself first so you can come outside in again. So we do this journey here on the retreat to meet ourselves in a certain kind of way, in a more and more precise, careful way, in a smaller way. Our, our universe kind of gets smaller as we're here, but not so that we become diminished, but so that we can get smaller, so we can really meet meet the moment, meet ourselves, touch what's going on, touch, make contact, see what happens, see who we are, see what gets deeper and deeper away, see what's extra, let it shed, let it fall away, become simpler, and then you'll find how big you get in that process. And you get really big when you disappear. You, you, you're not really needed. You're not really needed for your freedom. You're not really needed for the, your full-blown love to come forth. It's a relief to know you're not needed, isn't it?
you're extra. <laughs> and then we can meet in the field of peace, freedom, and love. So I hope that this talk also encourages you uh, to slow down, to give yourself over to the process of being in retreat, to um, be willing to explore it in whatever comes up. Be willing also to be uncomfortable at times. Um, uh, not unduly uncomfortable, but don't run away. Don't, don't take a break just because you're uncomfortable. Stay in it. Stay in it and see what you meet, see what you discover. And slow down, be here, follow the schedule. Let your universe become a beautiful bubble that's about only about, I don't know, two, three feet around you. This is your world. So let's, um, if the idea of a bubble is nice, where we sit for a couple of minutes in your bubble. If the idea of a bubble is claustrophobic, then um, imagine that you're, you're this, you are space, <laughs> as big as the sky. So it can be as simple as saying here and then being open to experience what is here. Here.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.